Coming up, with only 14 days left in the baseball season, two teams that were expected to be locks to play in October find themselves in a precarious position. Can the Padres and Yankees find a way to crawl into the postseason? The Raiders, Ravens, Seahawks, and Saints highlight the winners and losers as I'll go around the league to discuss week two in the National Football League. Is there concern down in Tuscaloosa as Alabama was far from their dominant selves as they held on to beat Florida on Saturday? The Ryder Cup will close out the golf season. Do the Americans have a shot to win? Also, is Patrick Cantlay the number one player in the world? The NHL is about to open training camp with an old familiar face coming back to the Islanders as his career comes full circle. Is he that missing piece to get to the cup finals? There's so much to discuss, dissect, and disseminate. I'll have it all for you in a moment, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits as always. And although autumn is officially two days away, count them. Roughly 48 hours until the leaves will start to change, the temperature will start to drop, and of course, the jackets, the boots, the jeans will be in full bloom. But even with that being said, the weather recently in the Northeast and pretty much throughout the rest of the country, just like the sports universe, has been nothing but hot 
and yours truly will deliver everything that's going on with what the world of competition has to offer as this is the J Reels podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard and for those who've been banging with me for now 215 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It's a Monday, September the 20th in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what's expected on this podcast is as follows. The Alabama Crimson Tide. Their defense looked very mortal against the Florida Gators there on Saturday, which raises the question, is it possible that this machine of an institution could lose in the not-too-distant future? It's highly dubious, but I'll dive into that in the rest of college football as Week 3 was completed just this past Saturday. NFL Week 2 saw plenty of drama throughout the league, even if the matchups weren't all that sexy. I'll recap the winners and losers of the week, including... The Ravens finally getting the piano off of their backs with a Sunday night win over the AFC champion Chiefs. It's come full circle for one Zdeno Chara as it looks like he's going to finish what he started as he returns to the New York Islanders on a one-year deal. Remember, he was an Islander going back to the mid-90s and here it is at the age of 44 coming back to see if he could be that final piece to put the Islanders into the Stanley Cup Finals. As you know, they've made it to the Final Four the last two years. Is that the case? You know I'll dissect that later on, as well as the golf as the final quote-unquote major this coming weekend at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin as the Ryder Cup will kick off, the Europeans versus the Americans, a lot of internal strife with the Americans, I'll get into that, but even more so, Patrick Cantley has been rated the number one golf in the world, we talked about him a couple weeks ago, is that the case as we head into this Ryder Cup? I'll get into all that and then some, including... My hero in zero of the week. I get it, football fan. How dare you even think to talk baseball right now, considering that you had another wild and crazy week two. Lots of different scenarios, whether it was games coming down to the final second, last-minute field goals made, field goals that were missed, upsets, a win by the Ravens, who finally were able to beat the Kansas City Chiefs even if it was week two in an NFL season. But I have to start off with the marathon of the baseball season now heading into the home stretch. And I've talked about this dating back to the summer. So football fans, just hang tight with me because the pennant races, especially in the wild cards, are starting to really heat up. And going back to the early part of summer, I talked about this baseball season not having a lot of drama, not having a lot of intrigue. We talked about all the no-hitters pretty much the first six weeks of the season how lackluster this baseball season has become. Not to say that it's gotten any better or certainly taken off pretty much from the All-Star break on. But as we now get through to the final couple of miles to complete this marathon, this 162-game season, all the attention is now focused to me right now on two teams that were prospective favorites to become locks in the postseason. I mean, not even write it down in pencil. Put that sucker in Sharpie. If this was April 1st and you're mapping out which teams were going to go to the postseason, the two teams that came off the top of the head with the quickness were the San Diego Padres and the New York Yankees. And here it is with roughly 12, 13 games to go, depending on which team you root for and which team you follow. These are the two teams I'm going to zero in on right now because... With the Padres and all the hype coming into the season, the trades that they made, whether it was bringing in Hugh Darvish and also Blake Snell, 
to be at the top part of that rotation, signing Fernando Tatis Jr. to that mega 13-year, what was it, $340 million contract. They already have another $300 million player in the mix with the one Manny Machado. We know about Eric Hosman at first, which was pretty much the first sign of the Padres trying to make that shift to become a team of relevance, to become a team that could maybe move up in the ranks in the National League. And everything that entailed coming into this Major League Baseball season, the Padres wanting to be the, not just the younger brother of their up-the-coast rivals and the Los Angeles Dodgers, but to be eye-to-eye, to maybe even dethrone them in the National League West. And here it is. Now, 149 games in, with those aforementioned 13 games to go, they currently stand at a record of 76 and 73, which for me, in the MLB preview, check the receipts as I like to say, I picked them as an under, because their over-under win total was 92 and a half, and I know it was a roll of the dice, I knew it was very risky. Because on paper, this team looked like they were going to be a bonafide 95-win team at least. And here they are, 76 up, 73 down, and now three and a half games behind in the wildcard mix. The season has certainly begun to drift out to sea for this Padre ball club. And it culminated what happened in St. Louis over the weekend. Not only getting swept by the Red Hot Cardinals, but Saturday night, the mano a mano, not going to say there was any type of fisticuffs, but for Manny Machado to get in the ear of Fernando Tatis Jr., who, when you think of the Padres, you're not thinking of Machado, you're not thinking of Hosmer, you're not thinking of Snell, you're not thinking of anybody but the shortstop number 23 in Tatis Jr. And for him to be in the dugout after a call strike three, and just bitching and moaning, ranting and raving in the dugout to where Machado had to go in his ear as a leader of that team to say, stop it, it's not about you. And for the dugouts to convene, to try to separate the two players, I'm sure you saw some of the video that has been put out there on the internet. Not that it's anything to really go crazy about. It certainly wasn't Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, a la 1978 up in Fenway. But... That is a microcosm of this Padre season coming to a boil, coming to a head where the team is just skidding out of control and now the whole world got to see where the Padres are at not only just this stage of the year, but pretty much their whole season as it's going up in smoke. And there is no recourse for this team because the schedule only gets harder as they have to conclude their season Next week, on the road, at LA to play the Dodgers, and at San Francisco, which both of those teams are going to be fighting out for division. So it's not as if the Dodgers and Giants are going to take the pedal off the metal, because it is a full sprint to the end of this marathon, as both the Giants and Dodgers were separated by one game with the Giants in first place. But as we all know, whomever wins the division in the NL West will be able to sit back and not have to play in a wildcard game So it is going to be tooth and nail down the stretch. And you're looking at a Padre team that could quite possibly, for all the hype, everything coming into the season, the high win total, even thoughts of them maybe overtaking the Dodgers in the NL West, they may finish under 500. Nobody in their right frame of baseball 
mind could have ever imagined that this Padre team would not only fall short of making the postseason, but finish under 500. A possibility that's looking more like a probability with just 13 games to go. And then in the other league, when we look at the Yankees, now they had a stretch here where they played the dregs of the American League. They played the Baltimore Orioles six games, actually seven, but they went three and four against them, or excuse me, four and three as the Orioles went three and four. Got my numbers mixed up here. So when you go four and three against a team where the Tampa Bay Rays went 18 and one against throughout the course of the 2021 season, if that isn't a red flag, I don't know what is. And then after a win on Friday night against the Cleveland Indians, they were bombarded in their own ballpark to the tune of 11 to 3 and 11 to 1. An Indian team that's pretty much been a dead team walking since the early part of August. And although they have the Texas Rangers coming in and they're a god awful baseball team, but the Yankee schedule over the last couple of weeks after the Rangers pay their visit to the Bronx, it's looking like an insurmountable task. They go to Fenway for three games. In one of those games, they'll face Chris Sale. They go to Toronto, which is the hottest team in the American League right now, it seems. And then they close out their regular season at home against the Tampa Bay Rays. And when we look at this Yankee season, we've talked about it time after time, and I'm not going to belabor the facts, but all you need to look at is the stretch right after that 13-game winning streak where it concluded in Oakland in the first two games of that series, or really in the third game, where they lost the back two of that series to Oakland, which started a different kind of streak, a losing one, I might add, for the Bronx Bombers, where they lost two out of three to Anaheim, and that's inexcusable considering Anaheim's been out of it since the 4th of July. Then they come home to lose two out of three to Baltimore. They get swept four by Toronto. Okay, Toronto was a good team, but you figure if the Yankees are going to be in any type of contention, at best, you have to at least split there. And they got swept to the tune where they didn't even have a lead in that series. They lose two out of three to the Mets last weekend. And then this coming week, they lose three out of four to Baltimore, which they actually could have lost two of those games. But the final game of that series was the one that people aren't going to forget. And Gary Sanchez is up to his old hijinks behind the plate. And if you haven't seen enough Yankee fans of Gary Sanchez, then you must be watching a different type of baseball game because I'm sure you want to send him packing and maybe even drive him not only to the airport, but to the destination that he may be heading to this offseason because if I was a Yankee fan, I would have had enough going back to two years ago when I suggested that he should have been on the rails out of New York and to another team, whether it's in the AL East or the NL West, it didn't matter. Because Sanchez is not fit to play here anymore. And I don't want to just pick on him, but here's another week where he can't catch a ball, pass balls, can't make tags. That's been the story of Gary Sanchez here the last couple of years. And then, this weekend, when you lose two out of three to the Indians, but just the back end in that fashion, including Garrett Cole, who came back from a hamstring injury, I get it that it was against the Orioles, but we know that the Yankees and the Orioles have had their moments, or more so the Orioles have had, against the Yankees. He came back after that hamstring injury with a win in Baltimore, but then followed that up with just an absolute clunker 
Five and two-thirds, ten hits, seven runs. And you can forget about him for the Cy Young this year. And now the Yankees are two games behind in the loss column for the wild card. Their situation is a lot better than San Diego, although they're scheduled the rest of the way, as I mentioned before, not easy. But it does bring the question, and I get with the Padres, it could be easy. They may fire Jace Tingler, who's been there for two years. I'm sure they're going to do whatever it takes to bring in another manager because of how they just fell flat on their faces. But if that's going to be the case in San Diego, a team that, although with everything that surrounded them coming into the season and falling way short of their expectations, what can you say about the Yankees? Here's a team that is built, not just for October, but it's built to go to the World Series. And as we saw last year, didn't play well down the stretch. All right, I get it, 60 games. They lost a tough five-game divisional series to the Rays. You just tip your cap and move into an offseason where you try to make moves. But now as we get into 2021, and not to rehash everything that's happened to date, but these last three and a half weeks has been indicative of the Yankee season. Whether you win 13 in a row, and then since then have lost 15 of 22. And now, even with the Rangers coming into your building, as a Yankee fan, do you feel confident that this team is going to be able to prevail and make it into the postseason? Considering that they have the Red Sox on the docket next weekend, and then Toronto, as they go to the Rogers Center for the first time in two years, and you know that place is going to be rocking, hoping that Toronto does secure a spot in the wild card to probably go up against the Red Sox in a one-gamer, which would be pretty good. I understand it's not Yankees-Red Sox, but... Because the way Toronto's been playing, and again, it is the Red Sox, divisional foes, that should be a very good game, which will be probably played in Fenway Park, which will even give the better setting than maybe Toronto would. But all I could say is, do you trust the Yankees to have a stretch where they could go 9-3, and 8-4, and four, and then hopefully get some help along the way? from the Tampas of the world, from Minnesota, who's going to be playing Toronto here, for the Mets, who go to Fenway for two games as they play the Red Sox. You can never count the Yankees out until you chop off that head and put the stake through their heart. But you have to wonder, are the Yankees going to have enough fight here down the stretch to even make it interesting going into this last week? So as we sit here, let's say a week from today, And if the Yankees lose two out of three to Boston, and dare I say, lose two out of three to Texas, is this a scenario where Hal Steinbrenner, who probably wouldn't know the first thing of firing anybody, unlike his dad, generations ago, but would they even think to not only dismiss Aaron Boone, but even Brian Cashman? Now, I don't know what Brian Cashman's Contract status is, I don't know if he has another year left, whatever, but please, they're the Yankees. They print money. They could cut bait and say goodbye to him as if it was yesterday's newspaper. But you have to ask, and if you're a fan of this team, you have to wonder whether or not Cashman is time for him to go. Just because you've been with an organization for so long and have had all the resources and you've won championships, mind you, many, many, many years ago right now, but you have to say whether or not If you're Hal Steinbrenner and you look in the mirror, no matter how much Brian Cashman is part of the Yankee family, is it time for him to be sent packing? 
Is it time to go in a different direction? Is it time to find maybe the young GM? Or just to have a new face, new blood to be the general manager of this ball club? Does that mean it's going to be better? Does that mean they're going to improve overnight? I would say no. But just like the Yankees did with Joe Girardi after the 07 season, a year in which they came out of nowhere to not only make it to the postseason, but they made it to a Game 7 of the American League Championship Series and lost to the Astros in 2017. And then they gave Joe Girardi his walking papers. Well, will Hal Steinbrenner have enough gumption to have Brian Cashman walk into his office sometime in October, whether that means it's October 4th or 5th or if it's the 25th, to say, Brian, you've done so much for this organization, but it's time to part ways. And whatever's left on his contract, he's going to get bought out, whatever, and that's it. It's time for him to move on. For me, I think it is time. Aaron Boone, forget about it. That to me, that's neither here nor there. You would think it would be an automatic that he'd be gone. He doesn't even have a contract after this year, so it's easy for the Yankees to just discard him. But to me, it's Brian Cashman. That's the one guy, especially if you're Hal Steinbrenner, that you have to really sit deep in your thoughts and think, is it time to just part ways with him? Because for the last 12 years, as it's looking right now, the Yankees aren't going to make it to a World Series. And as it is, his father's probably turning over in his grave right now, knowing that the Yankees may not make it to a World Series in a dozen years. Something's got to give. If it's me, and it's not a hot take by any stretch, people, but would I be surprised if Brian Cashman's going to be gone if the Yankees don't make it to the postseason? I wouldn't. In fact, if I'm a Yankee fan, I would probably have a big giant sigh of relief. And not knowing who that next guy is going to be, knowing that you're going to pluck some young GM off of, or assistant GM off of another organization that may be seamless and the transition could be new blood, new feeling, new culture, whatever it is. But I think it's time. And if the Yankees don't do it, that's their prerogative. But if I'm the owner of that ball club, I would say, that's it, Brian. Thanks for everything. Thanks for all the championships. But it's not enough. It's time to go in a different direction. And then on the flip side of that, is there any team in baseball hotter than the St. Louis Cardinals? I found that out firsthand last week where they came into City Field and swept the Mets out of their misery and I'll get to them in a second and I promise I'll keep it brief but the Cardinals right now are just riding high and it's going to be unlikely although they play the Cubs seven times here down the stretch but they also play the Brewers seven times as they have a makeup with the Cubs there Friday I believe they're going to have a day night doubleheader but they have four upcoming in St. Louis now and then they play uh, they play St. Louis next week at home to wrap up their season But for St. Louis to go on this run, and it's weird because I always felt that St. Louis was a team that consistently, no matter who the cast of characters are, we know who the mainstays are, the Paul Goldschmidt's, now the Nolan Arenados, we know about Yachty, Molina, Adam Wainwright, etc. But it's a lot of these other guys that have come in here and have done the job here over the last few months. The Tyler O'Neills of the world, the Harrison Baders, 
uh, go on down the list. And it makes you think that as well as they played here over the last few weeks, really the last six weeks, will they run out of gas come October? Or will they just continue to ride this magic carpet ride into the postseason and maybe take off and go on a long, deep postseason run? The one problem is that they'll face the Dodgers most likely in the wildcard game, one game playoff. Now, I would think that they would rather play the Giants and go to San Francisco as opposed to going to LA. But because of those veterans that I mentioned on the team, they're not going to be afraid of Dodger Blue or even the Giant Black and Orange. And that's what you like about the Cardinals because they have that moxie. They have the culture, as I mentioned before, and as you hear, pretty much beating over your head throughout sports. We know St. Louis is that type of team that, yes, they may flounder. And just when you think that, geez, they're a couple of games under 500, their season isn't going to click. Well, they pretty much took the baton and have not only run, but they have just flown by everybody in the NL wildcard race to the tune where they're now three and a half games up in the standings. And as it looks right now, I get it. They have to go to Milwaukee for four. And Milwaukee already has the division wrapped up. The one thing about the Brewers, they're pretty much going to be where they're at. It's not as if they're going to try to match or even overtake either the Dodgers or Giants with best record in the National League. So the Brewers should coast here. And I'm sure they're going to rest players along the way. I know they're going to try to bang the Cardinal drum here to see if they could upset their apple cart and maybe have them... Go back to the pack a little bit where maybe some of the other teams in the National League could come up. But I don't think that's going to be the case. The Cardinals are playing very good baseball right now. And when we take a look at the wildcard standings, again, Dodgers are in cruise control, as we said. But we know that they have the division sites in their horizon where the Giants are just a game ahead of them. And then the Cardinals currently have a three-game lead but four in the loss over the Reds. And then three and a half with the Phillies, Padres, and you can forget about the Mets. So the Cardinals are looking good here. And then to flip over to the other side to the American League, you have the Red Sox, a game over the Blue Jays right now, but they're tied in the loss because the Red Sox are 86 and 65, where the Blue Jays are 84 and 65. Followed by the Yankees, a game and a half back, but two in the loss at 83 and 67. Oakland and Seattle have a huge four-game series in Oakland starting tonight. So who knows if one of those two teams will knock each other out. The A's have actually played well here in this recent stretch, winning five in a row as they're just two games behind and a half game behind the Yankees for second place in the wildcard race. And then you have Seattle. Like I said, they're 80-69. and Big series there. They have to win three out of four minimum. In order to keep themselves afloat, if they split, it's not going to mean much. You would prefer for Seattle to sweep there, but considering they're on the road, and I don't have the pitching matchups in front of me, but if you're a Mariner fan, your only hope of staying in this race is winning three out of four minimum. A split's going to do you nothing. And if you're Oakland, if you split here, you're fine, but then you also got to worry about the Yankees and what either Boston or Toronto is going to do here over the course of this week. Now, mind you, the Red Sox only have two games between now and Friday night. The two games against the Mets are tomorrow and Wednesday, sandwiched by off days. So, 
depending on what they do, whether they lose both or whatever, it's not as if they have a three-game series and it's not as if you're going to be looking at the Red Sox scoreboard tonight or even come Thursday night. So if you're in the Pacific Northwest or by the Bay, you pretty much have it in front of you as to inch closer in this wildcard race, even with the Yankees and two other teams ahead of them. Now, the other divisions, you can forget about. We're not going to talk AL East because we know the Rays are going to have that wrapped up. We're not going to talk AL and NL Central. As we mentioned about the Brewers, the same for the White Sox. And even the AL West, as the Houston Astros have a sizable lead. I believe it's six games right now. And I believe seven in the loss over the Oakland Athletics. So we don't have to worry about the Astros. But the NL East, you have the Phillies two games behind the Braves. And the Braves have played terrible. They did win in shutting out the Giants there yesterday, but they had lost four straight going into the game yesterday against the Giants. But now they go to Arizona and then San Diego. And we talked about the Padres and how they've just imploded here down the stretch. But for a team that plays its games out east, and remember, they already had a West Coast trip just a couple weeks ago when they went to LA and Colorado, and now they're back out west again. So the Riggers, as we like to say the dog days of August have now trickled into September for the Braves, especially late in the season. So who knows how much gas they have left in the tank. And then the Phillies, after winning two out of three over the weekend against the Mets, and they have the Braves in Atlanta next week, which is going to be intriguing, especially if the lead is, I'm not going to say three, if it's two and especially one, that's where everybody's going to pay attention because... The Phillies, who have been also as up and down as the Braves have been throughout the last couple of months, but I would like to see it close going into that final stretch because if you're a Philly fan, you definitely want to do your best to upend the Braves and then hopefully win a division outright after that. Atlanta, they close their season not only with the Phillies, but also the Mets go down there. So if you're wondering, but then also with the Phillies this coming week to have the Orioles coming in for three, and then over the weekend, they'll host the Pirates. So their schedule is a cakewalk leading up to that series, and who knows, they may even overtake the Braves by this time next week. So we'll definitely keep our eye on that. And then the Giants and Dodgers, as we talked about, the Dodgers this week, I believe they'll be on the road because they close out their season with San Diego and Milwaukee at home. But the Dodgers, as they look ahead here, now I'm checking out my schedule here. I actually got a little overzealous. But the Dodgers will be on the road as they'll be in Colorado for three, I believe. And then over the weekend, they'll be in Arizona. And as for the Giants, they go to San Diego here the early part of the week and then Colorado after that. So both of these teams... Not playing the best that the National League West has to offer. And I'm going to include the Padres in that based on everything that I've said here. So you would think as we get into that final week, these teams should still be within a game no more than two, whether the Dodgers overtake the Giants in the division or if it's status quo. And one thing to note with the Braves, they had a game rained out against Colorado there last Thursday. So even with the soft underbelly that the Phillies have in their schedule and with the Braves being out West, 
although they face up against one another next Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if there has to be a one-game playoff or it has to come down to a tiebreaker where the Braves have to play that game, so let's just say for argument's sake, if the Braves are, let's say, 86 and 65, and then the Phillies are 87 and 65, they're going to have to play that game as a makeup to see who's going to win the division. And then if the Braves win that game, then they'll have to go up against the Phillies to see who's going to win the division outright. So that's something to keep in mind. That game that may need to be made up down the road, which would be the Monday after the season, between the Rockies and Braves, that's one you're going to have to circle, especially if it comes down to a tiebreaker scenario. So I'll have to keep that in mind. So you do have a lot of drama here this last 13 days of the season. You know I'm going to be on top of it. And then finally with the Mets, to me they lost their season Tuesday night against the Cardinals and where they had a 2-0 and 3-2 lead. And mind you, this was the beginning of the Braves falling apart where they had their losing streak. And the Phillies were in and out against the Cubs before they got hot later in the week and into the weekend against the Mets. But when they lost that game... There on Tuesday night, so where they had those aforementioned leads, and then the Cardinals took over. They had a 7-4 lead in the 11th, and then the Mets made it 7-6, and of course they ended up losing at that point. But to me, that was it, because you cannot have games where you have won for the most part and then lose, especially this late in the season where the other teams are losing. And that was a night where everybody lost even in the wild card race, you had the Reds lose, you had the Phillies lose, you had the Padres lose. I mean, everybody lost. And right then and there, I thought to myself, that was the Mets season. Now, mind you, they weren't going to make it to the postseason anyway. And if there was any sliver of hope, you looked at that game, even after the loss there Monday night to the Cardinals. And what I said last week on the heels of the Yankee series and all the emotion and 9-11 and the whistling with Lindor and Stanton and all that, with having six more whole games to follow after that, and me saying that they had to at least win five to stay in the race, they ended up losing five and winning last night. You get RIP the Mets. We'll talk about more of them two weeks from now when we put the season to bed for sure, officially 100%. And the once upon a time in Queens, for those who partook in that, To me, watching that was going down memory lane. Yeah, did I learn a couple of things along the way? Yes, Bobby Ojeda getting the injection in his elbow before Game 6 against the Astros in the National League Championship Series. A couple other things. I like the relationship aspect that they had with Keith Hernandez and his father. And of course, Strawberry, his relationship with his dad, Dwight Gooden and his parents. Lenny Dykstra, we all know he's a character. But yes, I learned a few things, but a lot of these things I... New, and I can nitpick on some of the other things. The Cooters Bar in Houston with the guys, Ron Darling, I believe. Bob Ojeda was a part of that too, if I'm not mistaken, where they got arrested in a nightclub. But a lot of the stuff was talked about how the fan base down there, and I think it was more St. Louis than it was Houston, but they called the Mets Pond Scum. That wasn't brought up in the documentary. At least I didn't hear that. But If you're a Met fan, sadly, it's the only thing you can hang your hat on in the last 40 years. 69 was just well long ago. That was the year I was born, so I could watch all the highlights about 
69, Miracle Mets, Seaver, Kuzman, Clendenin, go on down the list. But 86, of course, is near and dear to my heart. But sadly, it was a million years ago, and that's the only thing that we could really rally around and really celebrate as one of the badass teams of all time. And a team as constructed as that was and as great as they were, we're never going to see a team like that again. And sadly, the GM... Frank Cashin just decided to start selling off players to the point where pretty much five seconds after they raised the World Series trophy in the locker room, he's handing a $5,000 raise to Ray Knight, who was the MVP of the World Series, and Ray Knight's like, seriously? Are you kidding? And to me, that was the beginning of the end, because then Kevin Mitchell gets traded to San Diego for Kevin McReynolds, later on Lenny Dykstra a couple of years later, and that was it. But I enjoyed it, just to reminisce about that team, that era, that time, how symbolic that they were in New York, the excess, the mentions of Wall Street, Michael Douglas, greed is good, etc. It just brought me back. And if you hadn't had a chance to watch it, I would recommend it. All right, so let's get into some football. The National Football League just concluded week two. Ah, I know tonight is Detroit and Green Bay. And you would think after what the Packers experienced last week down in Jacksonville against the Saints, you would figure that they're chomping at the bit to get back on the field to just annihilate the Lions. Tonight would be just a typical rocking chair, 34-13 type of game. But yesterday, not a lot of great matchups. I know you had the Sunday night, which everybody was looking forward to to see if Lamar Jackson would finally slay those Dragons of the Kansas City Chiefs and he did I'll touch on that later on but when we look at the league on a whole not not a lot of intrigue you did have a handful of games that went down to the final seconds or in overtime with some late winning or late missing field goals but to go over the winners and losers of the week my winners first and foremost are the Baltimore Ravens. As I said, they had to get the piano off of their backs. This was a game that they had to win on both fronts. One, to finally beat the Chiefs and to be able to say that they can, that maybe if they meet down the road and as of right now, I know it's only two weeks in, but they would have tiebreaker advantages if we get to January and deep into a postseason. But number two is to keep pace with a division that has come back to the pack whether you're the Pittsburgh Steelers in this particular instance losing to the Vegas Raiders, and I'll get to that in a second, and then the Bengals, after their week one win, go to Chicago, and they lose to a Bear team that they were able to get Andy Dalton out, the former Bengal, but Justin Fields comes in, not really too impressive, but the Bears were able to hang on and win their game, so everybody in the division is now 1-1. One and one. They didn't want to fall to the 0-2 ledger, even with them going to Detroit next week, So, with Lamar Jackson, who played very well, rushed for over 100 yards on the ground, had an acrobatic throw for a touchdown, which is a little overrated on Collinsworth's part. Yes, was it very athletic? Absolutely. But Hollywood Brown, there was nobody around them within 20 yards. You know, Collinsworth made it sound like he had this jump throw, weird angle, and that he threaded the needle in triple coverage to where Brown came up with the ball and ran the end zone. And it's not to diminish the play by any stretch, but geez, uh, enough. But kudos to them. Now, the Raven defense is awful. 
They do not have a pass rush. They were able to stave off the Chiefs there at the end, but at the same time, this is not your daddy's Ed Reed, Ray Lewis, Haloti Nada, Terrell Suggs, defensive laden Raven team. And the Chiefs, as we've said for eons, Tyron Matthew, Chris Jones, I know they're both very good, and I know Matthew's an all-pro, although, not that I'm watching every Chief game, but this guy isn't going to be confused with Ed Reed either. I get it, he had a pick six there to pretty much start the game yesterday, but with that being said, the Chief defense, no offensive coordinator is going to be shaking in their boots watching film around the clock to wonder, oh my God, how are we going to penetrate this Chief defense? But the Ravens give it up. They had a huge win for them, twofold. They're my first winner. And my second winner is the Vegas Raiders because for them winning the Monday night game, which we did not cover, obviously the podcast, I recorded it well before the Monday night game against the Ravens and how they performed there, especially in the overtime where they had a chance to win and then the turnover to where the Ravens had an opportunity to go down the field to kick the game-winning field goal, but then Lamar Jackson fumbles the ball, they recover, and then they got the touchdown to win. Yesterday in Pittsburgh, where they pretty much were in control. Their offense has been steady, if not spectacular. Derek Carr throwing the ball over the lot, the biggest play of the game at 16-14, where at a third and 10, Derek Carr drops back, off his back foot, just lofts one up for Henry Ruggs. He finds him, 61-yard touchdown. That was the game. Even though the Steelers did make it 23-17, but they were unable to slow them down on defense. And the Steeler offense, I usually like to save the Steelers for last, but since we're on the subject of this, their offense has not gotten on track. To me, this is just an extension of what we saw in the last five, six games of the year, last year into this year. Roethlisberger has not looked good. He's made some throws, but he just looks old. And if this isn't going to be it for him, I hope he makes it throughout the whole season. I hope he doesn't experience an injury here at any point of this year where he's probably going to think in the back of his mind, oh, I can't go out like this. Now, I don't want him to play like Peyton Manning a la 2016 or 15. But if that's going to be the case, he'll end up with a Super Bowl. But... This Steeler team, who were already missing Devin Bush, already missing Joe Hayden, lost TJ Watt to a groin, which may not be as serious as thought, but groins, as we know, just like high ankle sprains, they never heal in season. And we know with TJ Watt's game, it's all about his explosiveness coming off of that edge to get to the quarterback. It's not looking good for the Steelers here after week two, especially with the way, like I said, their offense has been sputtering, and that's to say it nicely. And a defense that was already missing two key components. And without Watt, you could pretty much forget it. And I know Melvin Ingram had a sack there in the game. But the Steelers did not look good yesterday. At all. I know Najee Harris had the stiff arm. All right, great. It made the highlights. Everybody's going to go crazy over that. But uh uh-uh. Give me the wins. You can keep all the style points. As Coach Mike Tomlin likes to say. That doesn't fly with me. But give it up. The Raiders finally need to get some luck drawn their way considering how awful they've been over the years. And for them to get off to a 2-0 start and have Miami coming into their building who they're struggling on their own accord, they could be 3-0 after three weeks. And as far as my losers of the week, you got to start off with the Seahawks. 
For them to have a 24-9 lead in their building and even 30-23, granted this isn't the Legion of Boom, but if you have a lead like that in your building, which is supposed to be one of the most intimidating buildings in the NFL, 12th man, crowd, etc., for them to not pull off that victory is just a terrible job. Granted, the defense is not the same. They don't have the pass rush. They don't have that lockdown ability in the secondary. I don't care what you want to say about Jamal Adams, but this isn't Cam Chancellor. This isn't Richard Sherman. This isn't Earl Thomas. And this isn't Michael Bennett to lead the front seven. That is as bad as a loss. And I understand the flip side of that. It's as great as a win that you can have for Tennessee considering what happened in week one, getting their doors blown off at home against Arizona. But the Seahawks definitely have to look long and hard here to wonder what went wrong as they weren't able to secure that lead and not only that, even add on to it to the tune of an overtime loss to where Derrick Henry ran roughshod over him in the second half. And they got to go back to the drawing board to see what went wrong. And then the other loser of the week is the New Orleans Saints. Now I get it. You could lose a road game especially in the division. Those division games are never easy. You can't look at a team like Carolina, who did win their first game against the Jets, but now in the division, especially coming off of a 38-3 thrashing over the Packers, to then show up for a 26-7, non-competitive, nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be found. I believe it was the lowest point total scored in the Sean Payton tenure. So that was just an embarrassing effort. And Carolina's gotten themselves off to a 2-0 start to where they're actually tied with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC South. But the Saints, they also have to go back to the drawing board and wonder what happened there at Carolina yesterday to where they were pretty much a no-show. So Winston, who went, what, 14 for 18 and five touchdowns by only throwing 145 yards passing the week before against the Packers, 11 for 22 for 111 yards with two interceptions is not going to cut it. And then for them to score their seven points in the fourth quarter with an eight-yard touchdown run still falls way short of what the Saints, as we've seen in the past, even with another quarterback in Drew Brees, but definitely makes you scratch your head if you're a fan of the Saints and the Big Easy, I'm sure, is not feeling too easy. In fact, probably queasy right about now after that effort there yesterday. And as we go around the league... Again, I'm not going to dissect every one of these games. People will be here all day and night because a lot of these games, really, am I going to get into Denver and Jacksonville? Now, Jacksonville did get off to a quick start there, opening touchdown from Trevor Lawrence. But after that, it was all Denver. And Denver's going to win a lot of these low-scoring games. They're going to depend on their defense and Teddy Bridgewater to not turn over the football in order for them to have any success this year. So I'm not going to get too crazy or dive into that game you want me to get into the Jets with Zach Wilson throwing four interceptions against the New England Patriots and I know a lot of them came in his what first five pass attempts I believe he threw three in his first five I mean New England didn't play a great game either but again it's against the Jets and although from what I've read that the defense actually played pretty well but when you see 25-6, to 6, even though it may not be as close as the score indicated, but when you just look at what the offensive output by the Jets, it was 100% that, offensive. 
Buffalo rebounded 35-0 down in Miami where Tua Tagovailoa had to leave with a rib injury. Jacoby Brissett fills in and does not do the job. So as I said before in the NFL preview a couple weeks ago, Miami could be looking at a long year here. And granted, they did win in New England last week, but I think that was more maybe New England shooting themselves in the foot as opposed to Miami just being dominant and being that team that just pretty much took the reins and were in control of that game up in Foxborough. We could talk about Joe Judge and the Giants and how his ineptitude down the stretch of that game Thursday night against the Washington football team was as the Washington football team got a late field goal to win that game. Cleveland gets their first win against Houston. Now you may have Tyrod Taylor out with a hamstring, so who knows? And highly unlikely you're going to see Deshaun Watson. So whomever the backup is down in Houston could go in the Thursday night game, which is going to be, oof, that's going to be tough sledding, people. For the Thursday night schedule, and I know it's not going to be great, and other than the opening night game, which you know Dallas and Tampa is going to be a highlight game, but to have Carolina going to Houston, oh my goodness. The Thursday night schedule has gotten off to a very slow and lackluster start, and it's understood because you're going to play the bad teams early. You're not going to have a Carolina-Houston in week 12. It's not going to fly. So you want to get the Jacksonvilles, you want to get the Jets, you want to get even the Giants for that matter. You want to get them off the schedule quick, fast, and hurry. And I don't even know when the Jets are playing on a Thursday night, but I'm sure it's got to be in the coming weeks. The Rams win in Indy. Carson Wentz hobbled with a right ankle injury in which the backup had to come in and play a series or two. And even with the Colts having their first two games at home against NFC West opponents, they fall to 0-2 as the Rams are now 2-0, 27-24 there at Lucas Oil. And when you look at the NFC West right now, you have three teams there at 2-0 with the Rams Niners, who won in Philadelphia yesterday, and the Arizona Cardinals, who won thanks to a last-second field goal that was wide right. We'll talk about that later on. And even with the Seahawks having a chance to be also become 2-0, as we've said, they are now 1-1, one one, but you're looking at a very competitive NFC West. And that comes to no surprise here, even with just two weeks into a season. The beat keeps on rolling for Tampa as they let Atlanta come back in the game, but Tom Brady with five touchdowns and two interception returns on pretty much back-to-back plays there by the Bucks secured a 48-25 victory. The big game next week is Tampa going to LA to play the Rams which we'll go into the week three schedule in a matter of moments. But Tampa doing their best to get off on the right foot. No Super Bowl hangover as they beat both Dallas and Atlanta to start their seasons. Speaking of Dallas, they go to L.A. to beat the Chargers there yesterday on a Greg DeLeg Zerline 56-yard field goal that iced it in overtime or right before overtime, excuse me, in the closing seconds. Going back to Cleveland there, because I know I talked about Houston and Cleveland, but I do want to give the Browns their props as Baker Mayfield, who had to leave the game with a shoulder injury, which I believe it was either separated or dislocated, not his throwing shoulder, his left shoulder, and they popped it back in, but the Browns were able to make do of the Texans there. And as I was talking about before, the scenario with the backup, let me peek here real quick as to whom that is. And as I see a headline that Deshaun Watson will not be active for the game Thursday night, 
Tyrod Taylor is day-to-day. He's going to get an MRI. But the backup was Davis Mills, who started the second half of the game there yesterday. So it looks like Mills is going to be your guy. And Watson, as we all know, with all the offseason trouble that he had, and not to go down that road, but chances are he's going to be inactive and not play in a Texan uniform until he's going to be traded. We talked about the demands by the front office where they want at least one active player and five picks or two players and four picks. Good luck with that, Houston, because I don't know if you're going to get any type of return despite the talent that Deshaun Watson does have. But that's another story for another day. And as we round out here this NFL schedule, we know that every week isn't going to be a nail-biting, down-to-the-wire, whether it be high-scoring or defensive battles. We understand that. And even though week one had a lot more sexier matchups, which is understandably so, it's the first week, they're going to try to get the best matchups that they could put on the docket. But this week, although you did have some that went down to the wire and some games that had some intrigue there, but overall, nothing really to write home if you talk about week two. And it's going to culminate with tonight's game because Detroit and Green Bay, as I said before, I could just see this being... 27 to 6 at halftime by the Packers and then they'll cruise to 34-13 or somewhere 38-13 somewhere to that score and as we look ahead to week 3 we talked about the Thursday night game which you could absolutely skip a thousand percent your Sunday night game is Green Bay at San Francisco which we'll see what the Packers do tonight you would think they'll be 1-1 one one to go to San Francisco to play that game which I know is going to be the scene of a crime back to the 2019 NFC Championship game where the Niners just blitzed the Packers out of the building. Raheem Mostert had, what, 212 yards on the ground. And as we all know, Mostert, pretty much with all the running backs on that team, are pretty much on IR when you think about it. Your Monday night game is Philly at Dallas. Eh. Then you have Tampa at LA, which is by far the game of the day because your 1 o'clock games right now Are you going to be crazy about Washington at Buffalo? Chicago at Cleveland? Baltimore at Detroit? Indy at Tennessee? Which this could be a last stand for the Colts here. So from this regard, not really a game that you're going to circle or want to watch, but the Colts starting off 0-3 could mean that Tennessee could cruise to a division title. Chargers at Kansas City? New Orleans at New England, Falcons at the Giants, Cincinnati at Pittsburgh, Arizona at Jacksonville, New York at Denver, Miami at Vegas. Wow, another bad week. And I know you're going to have some games that are going to be topsy-turvy and wild and wacky, what have you, but man, this is just not, ugh. Nothing good here. And my knockout pick, I was able to survive with Cleveland the week before with San Francisco, and I'm going to give this to you on the fly here, which is dangerous. But I'm going to choose the Las Vegas Raiders as my knockout pool pick this week. Raiders, they could go on to big things this year. And I'm trying to be strategic. I don't want to front load a lot of these knockout picks with the top teams in the sport. But when I look at the matchups here, I could pick Baltimore. I could do that. But I'm sure I could see Baltimore down the road beating another team. I'm not going to pick Kansas City. Obviously, they're playing... The Chargers, and with the quarterback there, Justin Herbert, you never know. 
I'm not going to pick Pittsburgh, even if it is against the Bengals. I'm not doing that right now. I'm picking Las Vegas. I'm going to stay with the hot hand. No Tua, Jacoby Brissett. All the Raiders have to do is just win the game. That's going to be my knockout pool pick for week number three. And as we turn our attention to college football, the Crimson Tide there on Saturday had a little bit of a scare. Now, mind you, the game was in control, and I know it came down to the two-point conversion there, and you had to wonder for a second if they would have converted there, did Florida have a chance to win this game? And to me, although I didn't think the game was hanging in the balance, it certainly was for the two-point conversion, but I thought Alabama, despite their deficiencies on defense, they gave up over 250 yards on the ground, they gave up a ton of first downs on third down, their conversion rate was for Alabama was terrible. But did I feel like they were in doubt? Did I feel like they were going to lose the game? I did not. And that's just the make of a champion. Unless they're trailing or let's say even tied that late, would I have thought that Alabama would have been in danger? Maybe just a little bit, but you know that Alabama would have went down the field and would have scored and that would have been it. But as it was, Bryce Young, who had another big game, throwing three touchdowns, and he looks like the front runner right now for the Heisman Trophy. I mean, is he not? Now, I know last week, I forgot who the pansy was that went into Tuscaloosa that they had to play there in their first game at home. But with the thrashing of Miami in week one and him throwing for four touchdowns there, the most ever by an Alabama quarterback in his debut, and then to follow that up in the swamp with three touchdowns, it makes you think that he is on the inside track to get the Heisman. Granted, it's only three weeks, way too early, can't get crazy or nutty about it, but the one thing about Alabama, if you're going to worry about their defense, maybe it's a combination of the heat. Now, granted, they played in Miami the week before, I understand, and with Florida having a penchant and knowing Alabama as they do, considering they played them in a championship game just a year ago and the familiarity there between both schools. I look at this as just a blip on the radar. Now, even if Alabama were to lose a game, and I'm not going to go through their schedule right now, I could and possibly see where they could get picked off, but they're not going to lose to LSU. They're not going to lose to any of these other teams down the stretch. And I'll get into that If Alabama, and I'll find out who they're playing in a minute, but if Alabama has another game like this against another, let's say, solid or good opponent, and we know Florida's ranked 11 in the country, so it's not as if there's just some team that came out of nowhere and had this game against Alabama. But if they play against a formidable opponent and they put up a performance on defense like that again, then I'll look at the schedule and say, all right, let's see where they could get picked off here before they get to an SEC championship. Because I'm not going to jump to conclusions or to think that, whoa, Alabama, you saw what happened there? They let Florida come back in the game. They almost had a chance to tie. This is uh, maybe the beginning of the end. Maybe we could see some things falling through the cracks here that other teams can exploit. Let's pipe down. And I hate Alabama. I want them to lose. I don't want to see them anywhere near the college football playoff. But you got to call it as you see it. There's just no way, until I see this again, And in the not-too-distant future, then I'll raise an eyebrow to think that, uh uh-uh, maybe Alabama 
could lose here before we get to late November and early December for the SEC championship game. As for the week itself, Penn State moves up the ranks with their win against Auburn on Saturday night. In fact, you had a little bit of a shuffling of the deck, so to speak, with these teams. You had Clemson and Ohio State move down based on the performances of Iowa and even Oregon moves up. Oklahoma, they had a game against Nebraska, which they actually dropped down a slot. So with Oregon's win last week, as we talked about, Winning at Ohio State, they move up to three. So it's Bama, Georgia, Oregon, Oklahoma, Iowa is your top five, followed by Penn State with what they did, as I mentioned, against Auburn. Texas A&M, Cincinnati, who beat Indiana. And Cincinnati's a team that you're going to have to look at. But when it comes to the college football playoff, you're not going to see. I'm sorry. We like to look at those teams, whether it was last year, the BYUs or the Coastal Carolinas of the world, to maybe be that Cinderella, that underdog that could somehow, some way sneak in through the back door. But uh-uh. Unless all these teams fall apart here and have two losses on the docket, there's no way the Cincinnati's or the even the Texas A&M's for that matter will have a shot to be anywhere near the top four or even get in the top four and stay there to be part of this college football playoff. And now that I think about it, let me look to see where Alabama is going to play Texas A&M here. Because usually they play that game, I want to say, if not late September, and we're approaching late September too as it is, but early October to where they will play A&M. And as it is, they will play them October 9th. So they have next week, Alabama plays Southern Miss, and that's going to be... 56 nothing. They're going to follow that by playing Ole Miss and then they'll have Texas A&M. So let's see what happens in the A&M game as far as them giving up upwards of 200 or 250 yards on the ground. An opportunity to either tie or maybe even take the lead late in the game to where I'll think that Bama could be in some trouble as we get later and deeper into this college football season. So I just had to look that up because, yeah, LSU is not going to beat them. Arkansas. Now, they go to Auburn at the end of the year, which that could be tricky. The game, usually when it's in Tuscaloosa, Auburn has no shot. But at Auburn, eh, we'll see. But I could see Alabama just cruising to 11-0 when you get to early December for that SEC championship game. Uh, Other than that, UCLA losing, that was a big loss over the weekend to Fresno as Fresno put up 40 points on the Bruins. Other than that, everything was pretty much status quo in college football. And when we take a look ahead to next week to see week four as we conclude the month of September and have our eyes set on October, Notre Dame at Wisconsin, and that game I believe is at Soldier Field, I want to say. So it's not in Wisconsin. I believe that is a neutral site game to be played at Soldier Field. So that's one game a lot of people are going to have their attention on, a 12 noon Fox game. You also have Texas A&M at Arkansas. And with the way Arkansas disposed of Texas last weekend, Let's see if they could do the same to the Aggies the way they did to the Longhorns. 
Clemson, who just barely beat a 14-8 against Georgia Tech. That doesn't bode well, and that's one of the reasons why they dropped in the rankings. And they're ninth in the country. They go to NC State, Iowa State, Baylor. Yeah, you don't really have a lot of great games this week. Let's call it as we see it. West Virginia, Oklahoma. Akron at Ohio State. Yeah. Pretty much Notre Dame, Wisconsin is your highlight game, and that's at 12 noon. And this is where college football is going to take a little bit of a dip here in the schedule because after the opening week where you have all these great matchups, week two, all right, a little bit better, but not great. And now week three, week four, week five, I know you may have the Red River shootout, Texas and Oklahoma upcoming, but yeah, you're going to have to wait to get to middle of October and obviously into November where you're going to get a lot of the conference play and a lot of the real good matchups. But you know, we're here. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm going to be on top of it, as you well know, as the college football season will continue on. All right, I'm going to quickly go through a few things before we bid adieu here. I'm going to start with the golf for a minute. With the Ryder Cup this coming Friday at Whistling Straits, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The Ryder Cup is a tournament I never pay attention to. I like to focus in on the four majors, but we know that this is the unofficial fifth major when you have the European golfers going up against the American golfers. And you got to wonder, with all the static leading up to this tournament, especially last week where you had Brooks Kepka pretty much calling this a waste of time. And former captain of the Ryder Cup, Paul Azinger, saying that, well, if you don't want to be here, then don't come. And we know with Kepka and his rivalry with Bryson DeChambeau and those two golfers are going to be front and center here. And knowing that if they could put their differences aside, if they could just, for one weekend, Say, come on, guys, for pride, for the country, for going up against the Europeans. Let's see what we could do here, as I believe the Europeans have won nine of the last 12, if I'm not mistaken. And that's going to be one to watch here, especially that dynamic with Kepka. If he's going to be at his top level that he always is, or is he going to be a guy that, if he gets off to a slow start, not to say he's going to tank it because that's going to look bad on him more so than it will be on the team but for him DeChambeau some of the other golfers on the tour which is going to be led by Captain Steve Stricker this is uh, to me I can't even tell you how much of it is a detriment to the U.S. team because they're going to have this hanging over their heads I don't know how this is going to play. I don't know how this is going to fare. I wish I could give you more, a little bit fingers on the pulse as to how this is going to play out. I would think that the Europeans are just going to dominate and continue to lay the smackdown on the U.S. team. And if it wasn't because of this dynamic where Kepka is just like, eh, laissez-faire, would rather do something else, and then DeChambeau and what he brings to the table... I don't want to pin it all on those two guys, but that's going to be the focal point here as to whether this team is going to do well against the Europeans this weekend. And this is from someone who's not following it and is not on top of it like the diehard golf fan. But following sports my whole life and knowing that if you're going to have a team with players that either don't want to be there or are going to look side-eyed towards one another and are not going to be on the same page, how's this going to bode well for this team in order for them to win this coming weekend against the Europeans. 
And then you have Patrick Cantlay, who is now ranked the number one golfer in the world. And I talked about Cantlay a couple weeks ago as a guy who won back-to-back tournaments, a guy who also won a tournament early on this year, wasn't a major, but that was the tournament where John Rahm had to bow out because at the end of the third day where the officials came up to him and they had to pull him off the course because of a positive COVID test where he had a six-stroke lead and then Cantley was the runner-up and he was the one that ended up winning that tournament. But here's the irony. The guy who's going to be on his own team here for the Ryder Cup, John Rahm, that should be your number one golf in the world. Not only did he win a major this year, but he was in the top 10 on all the majors and had that six-stroke lead. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what tournament that was. But if Rom would have completed that, he would have won that tournament and Cantley would have been somewhere either second or below. But because of Cantley's hot streak over the last few weeks, he's been ranked number one in the world. But when it comes to a lot of these majors, and this is a guy who has not won a major in Cantley, he's missed a cut on two of those four majors and in the other ones, he was nowhere to be found. So how is it he, the number one player in the world, where Rom won a major, was ranked in the top 10 in the other three and had won a couple of others, including the one that he had to bow out of. How is this guy not ranked number one? The computers have it all messed up? I don't know, but they need to rethink this or go back to the drawing board to say who the number one golfer is because it's not Patrick Cantley. It's not a knock on him. He's played well here. I talked about him in back-to-back weeks. Actually, I believe he beat Rom in one of those tournaments where he won by one stroke. And the last one, I believe it was not this past two Sundays ago. But still, Rom's track record for 2021 is a lot better than Cantley's. And how he's not the number one golfer, that's beyond me. To think NHL training camps are opening on Wednesday. Or is it the 22nd? Let me just think right. I think it's the 22nd. So it's that Friday. I got it mixed with the first day of fall. And as we talked about months ago when the Islanders lost that game seven to the Tampa Bay Lightning, I said that the Islanders are missing a piece. They need a player on their team that has been through the rigors of postseasons, that has won a Stanley Cup, that has been a captain of a Stanley Cup. And they bring in a guy over the weekend who started his career back in 1996 as a member of the Islanders as it comes full circle. The 44-year-old ageless defenseman, Zdeno Chara. Now we know Chara after that went to Ottawa, played in Boston for all those years, won a cup there in 2011, played in other cups after that in 2013 and 2019, then played in... Washington for a year, and now he comes to the island to, you would think, would be his final year. But then you have to ask yourself, if you're on the fan, is this signing worth it, considering that he has a lot of miles on those skates that he has? And on top of that, is he going to be a player that's going to be effective for anywhere between 13 to 16 minutes? This is not a guy that's going to log 20 to 25 minutes of ice time. And if he is... I mean, how long is he going to be in for this upcoming season, especially when you're starting your first 13 games on the road because of the arena, which is still being worked on, and it's not going to be ready until the week before Thanksgiving. So you have to factor that in. But for Chara to come here, I think it's a good move and a good fit 
because a lot's not going to be expected of him, but at the same time, there's going to have to be some production from him. And not from a production standpoint as far as goals, assists, power plays, things of that nature, but he's going to have to not only be that presence in the locker room to say, hey guys, I'm going to be the one to lead you and show you the way to get to that cup final, to beat the Lightning, hopefully in a conference final, to get to that Stanley Cup final. And what he could do as far as the intangibles, what he could do off the ice, on the ice, and be that guy who's going to be the rock to be more of that defensive defenseman that the Islanders desperately need in order to get to the Holy Grail and hopefully win a Stanley Cup. So if you ask me, is he the final piece? Yes, but only in these regards. His leadership, his toughness, and what's between his ears. As far as his ability and him staying healthy, that's all a big giant question mark. We have to wait and see once he gets on the ice and how effective is he going to be, not only just for the 82-game regular season, but the postseason, and that's where they're going to need him the most. Because you can't have him play, let's say, 60-some-odd games, and then he suffers an injury, and then he can't play in the postseason. Yeah, he could be the rah-rah guy. He could be the one in the locker room to get in these guys' ears or get in between their heads and say, hey, guys, you got to do it this way. That's all well and good. But you're bringing this guy here to be that captain-like, laser-focused, 100% all-in type player on the ice. Not a guy who's going to be sitting in the press box throughout the postseason. So although there are some factors where it makes you say yes, that he is that guy, but he has to be on the ice. Even if it's for 13 minutes a game, if he could be that third line of defense, he's not going to be that top line guy. He's not going to be Ryan Pollock or Adam Pellick. That he's not going to be. Does he fill in for Nick Letty, who's now been departed? And does he fill his spot? Who knows? But I think it's a right fit. Would you like a younger guy? Would you like a guy who's won a cup who maybe is in his early to mid-30s? Of course. Without question. Who could be more of a participant and as I mentioned, could for the most part be healthy and not only that, but also you'll see his play on the ice and be effective because those are the unknowns right now when you're 44 years old and have been bumped, battered and bruised here over the last few years to where You're just barely getting to the finish line if you're Chara. But who knows? They had an early exit in the playoffs last year. He's had a whole offseason to recalibrate. But again, Father Time, as we all know, is undefeated. Let's see what he could do. Let's see what he can contribute. Again, I think it was a wise signing. It's not going to cost you a lot either on top of that. But if he remains healthy and still has that ability that he's been able to bring for the last two plus decades, then... Hopefully he can carry that and stay healthy throughout the course of this year and into April, May, and potentially June to really show what he's been made of throughout his whole NHL career in what could possibly be his final year in the NHL. And then some basketball notes. Training camp doesn't begin, I believe, until the 29th. So you still have some time there. Eh, About 9-10 days. But the Rockets are looking to work a trade for John Wall. We know Wall is a guy that was traded there for Westbrook last year. And with the Rockets now in full rebuild mode, they're going to look for a team. 
it's going to be bad contract for bad contract. I believe Wall still has two years at, what, $80 million left on his deal. So you're going to get a guy like that back, whether it's Philly for Ben Simmons. I'm just throwing him out there if they're willing to part ways with him. I don't know if the Clippers are going to have what it takes to maybe try to trade for Wall, which I think would be a good move if Wall could stay healthy because you need that point guard. Reggie Jackson is not your guy. But to have three guys that are going to be making $40 million, that's going to be tough. So we'll see where John Wall goes. You would think sometime before training camp or during training camp, before the season begins. The Mavericks signed Frank Nilakina from the Knicks. I believe it's just a one-year deal, but Nilakina, who didn't really pan out here in New York, the last draft pick by one Phil Jackson. We know he's very good defensively, but his offensive game, as we all know, is average, and that's to say it nicely. Also, the Bucks. I want to throw this out there, just on a broadcasting front, they made Lisa Byington the first woman's full-time play-by-play TV announcer for a major pro sports team, so kudos to the Bucks. Hopefully, we'll see more of that in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. But then lastly, Steve Ballmer is announcing the new arena that he's planning to build there in Inglewood, pretty much right down the street from the Forum and from SoFi, where the Rams play, and the Chargers got to throw them in. He already has the name of the facility. It's going to be called the Intuit Dome. And for the longest time, he's felt as if the Clippers had no identity, that they didn't really have a presence when it comes to LA. We all know that's a Laker town. So by him being able to buy out James Dolan, $400 million in cash to the Great Western Forum, that iconic building where the Lakers played all their games dating to 1999 before they moved to the Staples Center. He had to buy him out in order to build that facility in Englewood because the Forum is still open for concerts and for any other events that could take place in that building. Well, now he'll have a share of both his new building, which is scheduled to open in 2024, 2025, and the Forum. And good for him. We know the Clippers, they've had zero identity over the years. They have made some waves as far as the franchise goes over the years, dating back to Lob City with Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and then now this latest iteration with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So the owner, Steve Ballmer, who has a zillion dollars, as we all know, and that building's going to cost $2 billion to erect and construct. So kudos to him as the Clippers hope to lay the foundation now into the 2024 year to have a competitive team, to have a team that's going to be built to last as opposed to just having a new building where it's a novelty and then you're going to have uh, 10,000 show up night in and night out because the Lakers are going to be consistently good with all the moves that they've made, even though LeBron will be long gone and Russell Westbrook, but they should still have Anthony Davis four or five years down the road. And the Lakers, as we all know, eh, They did have a stretch there where they were still relevant even though they weren't making the playoffs and one year they were in last place, but still the Lakers are the Lakers. That's always going to attract fans and they're going to attract celebrities. Clippers, not so much. All right, so now let's wrap it up here with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Milwaukee Brewers outfielder. No, not Ryan Braun. I know he just recently retired after 14 years and understandably so. He had a great career. I know marred by steroids and that whole incident, but 
I'll let him go off into the sunset here retiring as the Brewers are looking for a postseason push. But it goes to Kristen Yelich, who bought 10,000 tickets for this upcoming series against the St. Louis Cardinals, where not only did he buy these 10K tickets, but also is going to disseminate them for free to fans to show up in the building as the Brewers look to clinch the division. I believe their magic number could be down to as low as one right now. So with the Cardinals coming in hot as a pistol, you would think that the over the course of the next four games that the Brewers will be able to salvage one or get one and win a division title. So by him doing that, kudos to you, Christian Yelich. You're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Vikings announcer Paul Allen for calling the last second field goal attempt in the game against the Arizona Cardinals there yesterday, calling it good by the kicker Greg Joseph, where it was wide right. And you had to hear this guy. You would think that the Vikings won the Super Bowl based on this kick. And he pushed it wide right. And afterwards, you could just hear a pin drop where his color commentator, I forgot who it was off the top of my head, but he's saying, oh, it's no good, it's no good. And he's like, oh, I can't believe it. And you know that Allen had to be despondent. Why he got all geeked up and all crazy whether he watched it on a monitor, I don't know if the team traveled to Arizona, but yeah, he really got on his high horse and thought that the Vikings won. So for those who listen to the game on the radio, I'm sure drove themselves off the road. Paul Allen, my guy, you got to do a better job. You are my zero of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 215 in the books. I appreciate each and every one of you guys and gals for tuning in to listen to what it is I have to say. As we all know, There's so much content to consume out there, especially when it comes to sports. And for you to stop by to take time out of your day, it does not go unnoticed. I appreciate you guys, each and every one of you, for listening, hearing me chirp, talking about everything that's happening in the world of sports. And if you haven't done so already, as I mentioned at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Throw me a few stars. Throw me a review. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast as I try to get the word out to everybody. Take a screenshot, send it to me on social media, post it wherever you want to post it. I would, again, sincerely appreciate it. And if you want to hit me up, you could do so at any of the following social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels podcast, on Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, on Facebook, the J Reels podcast fan page, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com for any questions, comments, criticism, or praise. Hit me up. I'll be sure to follow up with you guys. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. All that's going to do is continue with the upkeep of the website, the production, equipment, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. I've been talking sports my whole life. And if you couldn't tell by the demeanor by the tempo, by the passion, the fervor, everything that comes out of my mouth and how I say it, my thoughts, opinions, analysis, hot takes, whatever you want to call it. If you don't know, now you know. Because I love to get into everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, 
on the flip, baby. <laughs>